a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke, Han, and the princess's story didn't end with the destruction of the Death Star. It continues in The Empire Strikes Back. The next chapter in the Star Wars saga. An epic of alien worlds. And the climactic clash between good and evil. Join the further adventures of Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Lando Calrissian, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca in a spectacular new episode of the continuing Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. to a very special episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today, May 21st, 2020, is the 40th anniversary of one of the best movies of all time, The Empire Strikes Back. With the two-year anniversary of this podcast happening this week as well, I thought it would be fun for me to go back through the past 65 or so episodes of this show and pull some of my favorite moments from some of my favorite guests as they talk about what it was like firsthand to work on the sequel to Star Wars. And if you know me at all, this look back focuses mostly on the special effects. The industrial light and magic move from Van Nuys to San Rafael, the Hoth sequences, the Tauntauns, the Walkers, and the start of Go Motion. I'll be introducing the people who are talking throughout, but just know that it is a combination of ILM wizards, legendary editors, and unsung heroes. I'm talking about a total of 16 Academy Awards won in this 25-minute episode. So let's all just buckle up and take a trip back, even before that 1980 release that we're celebrating today, before we knew who Luke's father was, and before any of us had even seen The Empire Strikes Back. We start with Academy Award-nominated, legendary matte painter, Harrison Ellenshaw, to set the scene. Well, because Star Wars had been so well-received, it was only natural that there should be the intended sequel, but George wouldn't have been able to make it if Star Wars had not been successful. And now he was able to put together what I... I call the dream team. The effects were not done in a warehouse in Van Nuys. Instead, George wanted to be uh, up in Marin County, closer to where he was living, uh, make it easier on him, and also gave him the opportunity to have his own effects facility built from scratch. So using people like myself and others 
who had most of whom had worked on the original Star Wars, not all of them. This, it was three years in between, and other people sometimes go and work on other movies. I happened to be available, and um, I just finished working on The Black Hole, so then I, I got to work on Empire Strikes Back, and it, it, was, it was amazing. It was a lot of pressure, because George also felt the pressure. Some people are saying, well, the first one's a fluke. You can't, you can't do better than the first one. And I felt that, you know, but there was a great deal of determination by everybody involved. Is we're, we're going to prove <laughs> that it, it wasn't a fluke. We're really good, but let's not, let's not go overboard here in getting overconfident. And also, by the way, this is going to be much bigger visually. Academy Award-winning editor Paul Hirsch. It was a different experience because design of Empire was very bold. Uh, after Star Wars, uh, any studio executive would have had us do a, a clone of the first film with you know a big battle at the end. Uh, and George decided he wasn't going to do that. And the big battle scene in Empires at the beginning. So that was that was really uh, daring. And uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I don't think he gets enough credit for, for what he's done, to tell you the truth. Academy Award winner Phil Tippett. Of course, nobody had anticipated the, the huge success that it was. And once that happened, once Star Wars became Star Wars, uh, maybe a year, year and a half later, they started pulling together a team to move up to Northern California from Los Angeles. And uh, I was part of that team that uh, because they wanted to extend the stop motion stuff to the uh, Imperial Snowwalkers and uh, the Tauntaun character. So uh, while I was living in LA, George had me do a bunch of drawings and some uh, three-dimensional uh, maquettes of the, the Tauntaun. John Bird would take stuff up there. He was currently working on, or simultaneously working on a prototype for the walkers uh, uh, with uh, Joe Johnston. And so we would go up there every you know, couple of weeks and show him our progress. And then eventually, once things got rolling, we got to the area and started production. Academy Award winner Richard Edlund. Well, you know, first of all, I, I built a special optical printer for Empire. And the thing about Empire Strikes Back was there could be no matte line. There could be no matte lines in the snow, the snow sequence. I mean, here you've got these light gray speeders flying around with lots of bl- motion blur, flying around on a white background against bl- pale blue sky and white clouds and, and snow. And any matte line would have would have nixed that sequence. It would not have worked in favor of matte lines. And and there wasn't anybody in Hollywood at that time that had conquered the matte line. And so basically, we had to do that on Empire Strikes Back with, with the photochemical process. And it was a very complex uh, process that required uh, you know chemical knowledge and. and and special developers developed multiple mats, one of which, would, there were two mats, basically, one of which held the, the edge back, edge off, so that the, the blurred edge would mat against the background. But the thing is that that mat was too thin, should hold the ship back from the rest of the, the, you know, so the rest of the ship would have been transparent somewhat. 
So I had to then make another map that was shrunk, that was that was inside the blurred area, that would enable the holdout of the, of the ship and not let it superimpose over the background. And so basically, that's how we did it. We had our own processing machine, and we had uh, we had a chemical mix department, and it was a very complex photographic problem that had to be worked out. And 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 we did that. And I had some incredibly talented people. Academy Award winner Dennis Murin. Well, the walkers were really something I wanted to try, like based on primarily on the way King Kong had been done. When it's all pretty much in front of the camera, you've got big painted backgrounds, you've got sets with the stop ocean puppets, the animators can get in and do it. The whole thing is very controlled because I felt we needed that to get the clarity and the reality of it. I didn't think we could get that through blue screen, through optical compositing. So I wanted to get as much done in the camera as we could. That was a terrific experience working on that and being able to work with Phil and John and everybody and everything. And then uh, the asteroid sequence was more about, it, about clarity, how to be able to get you to figure out what was really going on. Because the first couple of takes we started putting together, you couldn't tell, you know, what are these things? They're flying toward you. Are they going to hit you? Are you really evas- you know, ev- evading them? Or you couldn't tell what was big and what was small because uh, everything was different sizes. The asteroids were all different sizes. They were different, moving at different speeds, different directions. It was just more like a chaos. So organizing that, redesigning the shots, and still being able to then put them together in the comp, knowing that it's, it's going to be clear clear at that point, that really helped to make that sequence very clear to follow what's going on. And that's the whole point of everything we do, is the audience has to understand it. Academy Award winner, Lorne Peterson. Well, that uh, Phil Tippett had uh, John Berg with him, and they both were machinists also. So they were making the armatures, and uh, they're... Uh, same as the ones where King Kong were done. You know, it's a traditional way of using ball sockets and, and Allen wrenches, Allen bolts to tighten up the ball sockets. Because usually there was a little spot, even through the flesh, that you could put a, a, a ball and uh, Allen wrench, turn or tighten uh, joints and all that stuff. Me personally, I'm not a stop motion animator, so I, I did, we did the sets for them and I did the, uh, the walker body and all that kind of stuff uh, for, to put it on top of their armature their metal armature. And on, on the snow sets, you have to have, make these trap doors that, um, that it has to look just like the regular, regular snow, but from a low angle, you can't tell that there's a trap door because the guy has to pop up. The, the, they shoot one frame of um, film, and then they stop the camera, and they pop out of the pop door, and then they move the model just a little bit, pop down to the trap door, and uh, do another frame over and over and over again. So the guys have to sit underneath of a four-foot-tall table for hours and days, you know. And uh, what you do is you'd uh, slide in lunches, you know, on a long stick, you know. They wouldn't, you're not supposed to talk to them. You know, slide in a sandwich and slide in a drink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, they had to, sometimes they'd be there literally all day, and then they'd do all day the next day and all day the next day without coming out. You have to be young to do that. I mean, my back would be driving me crazy if I had to sit for a whole day underneath of a four-foot table. It was was a no-brainer. Now, the the walkers were all done with traditional stop-motion animation. There was no funny stuff involved with that. But uh, this Tom Tom character had to run at, like, 
25 or 30 miles an hour, and uh, that was always kind of a problematic thing for stop motion in that uh, stop motion process because every single frame was a clean frame. Um, it tended to look very staccato, and and we, you know, stop motion animators have been experimenting with motion blurs for years and years, and you know, none of them were successful. They were really elaborate and didn't look that good. And it became, it was really clear. I would go visit, visit Dennis and, uh, and Ken. They were, uh, on the first hour was shooting on the night crew. And that's where I became aware of motion control technology. And it was, it was very clear that all we had to do was just try hooking up, uh, a stop motion puppet to that and see what happened. And so that's what one of the very first things we did. Ken Ralston and I set up, uh, we didn't have a stop motion puppet at the time, so I used, uh, there's a, a stop motion puppet that I created for Joe Dante's Piranha, and we used that as a test. And uh, in an afternoon, shot a couple of tests and got stuff back, and it worked, and that's what we were going to do. Yeah, it, wa- it wasn't, not, it wasn't very stressful at all. It was just we tried stuff, and uh, and if it worked, it worked, and it did when we very first arrived, Phil Tippett, the stop motion animator, and I were, there were only really two of us. Uh, there were two or three that arrived first, but the building wasn't even, didn't have rooms in it, it didn't have hallways, it just had a very front office and a bathroom. So we would lay out uh, two by fours and tell the carpenters that's where we want the room and that's where we want the door. That's how we did it, rather than doing drawings, you know. But anyway, Phil Tippett and I, went in pursuit of um, the fur for the tauntauns. And, you know, the scale of the fur has to be really scaled down. And, um, you know, you think, well, there's something called, uh, every once in a while in a slaughterhouse, there's an unborn calf. uh, Because a cow is, they usually watch this pretty carefully, but if a cow will be pregnant on the early stages and they can't tell, gets slaughtered and behold it, there's a little tiny fetus. And the hair on a fetus is just really small, you know. And what we were looking for was a white, because we wanted to dye it. We couldn't use a black and white one. We wanted a white, unborn fetus. And we went around to slaughterhouses and taxidermists and all this kind of stuff um, without an awful lot of luck at first. And I remember telling Phil, because we did it day after day. We went to different, further, further out places, you know, phoning a lot. And I said, Phil... God, what if people start to believe that we're like devil worshippers or something like that? And this is part of a, some kind of a rite that we're right. doing, you know, because uh, it sounds so weird looking. Because right. c- some of the people we would ask had no idea that such a thing even existed, you know. Mm-hmm. Slaughterhouses did, but. Yes, I, I, I did not. <laughs> yeah, you did <laughs> this not. Is not okay. And so then the next stage is what you do. The way that King Kong was done was the traditional way that's been used for many, many years. And it's probably an old taxidermist trick. And if you, since a tauntaun is only like a foot tall, the skin, if you just use the regular leather, tanned leather and everything, it would be so stiff and everything. And we needed it all flexible. The fur needed to move and with the bones and the muscles. And uh, the traditional way it's done is you, you take the raw, not the tanned skin, the raw skin, and you paint the fur side with a water-soluble glue. So you just paint it over and over again, really get that saturated. And then you put it in a box with maggots. And the maggots eat the, uh, the raw flesh, but they won't eat the, uh, the follicles. There's no nutrition in hair 
uh, whereas there is in uh, raw meat and uh, raw uh, uh, deteriorating meat. Uh, I don't. Will maggots go after fresh meat? I don't think they have to. It has to ripen a little bit, you know. But anyway, that's the tr traditional way you do it. And then after the follicles are all exposed in the glue and the flesh is all gone, you get rid of the maggots and you take latex, flexible latex, and paint it over the follicles until you have a real thin layer, of less than a 30-second of an inch of latex. So then you turn it over and wash the glue away, and uh, the water-soluble glue, and now you have this flexible skin yeah. of latex with fur embedded in it. And so, you know, it's... You can wrap it around a, a foam right. device and everything, uh, armature and all that stuff. But um, we never could find a raw flesh, and so we had to take a tan thing and use razor blades and laboriously wow. shave away without getting the follicles. Right. You know, and shaving. I mean, you think of how much time that takes to shave away a skin, to wow. you know, and then we dyed it gray and, and that kind of thing. But that's how that's how we came up with the tauntaun skin. Academy Award winner, Ken Ralston. I guess just because you do something for so long, it becomes easier to get the results you always wanted to get, but couldn't when you first started, just because it was just too difficult. So I felt more confident in designing shots along, of course, with George and everybody else and Joe Johnston and all those guys that, you know, kind of pushed the limits and were more fun. I mean, that to me was my basic thing. It's like, what's fun here? Let's have a good time instead of like, what's the most complicated shot I can do, even though some of them turned out to be that. <laughs> and uh, you just, uh, you kind of go into it that way. Some of the lessons, I guess, are what you can get away with, what you can uh, not worry about, and the audience won't see the little tiny nuances, the little goofs or whatever, and move on. Because if you choreograph your shot correctly, and you are in control of the audience's eye and the subject matter, Sometimes little things, You first of all, we didn't have time to fix everything. And you knew, and I learned this from George mainly, he could look at a shot uh, as it was coming together. And if you were worried about something, he might just say, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. The audience is looking over here. And of course they were. They had no choice. I mean, it was like, oh, okay. Especially with quick cuts, whatever was going on. Certainly not the uh, pixel fucking that occurs now with digital, but you did learn well, actually, it was a very interesting lesson for me, which was human perception of movement and just anything like that. And that, you know, probably leads to that story you've heard a hundred times, but the potatoes and the asteroid field scene. And it's just things that I would do sort of playing with that idea. And uh, it was it was fun, first of all, to do and stupid. And that was our first motivation. And then also learn something at the same time. And it was also exciting to work with George and and feel you know, you had your chops and you knew how to use the system well enough that you could sort of challenge yourself, go out there and try to do something that hadn't been seen before. Where they shook the uh, thousand tie shifts out of the hat, you know, into the camera. There's there's one incredible attack sequence. It took them 14 hours to do the composite. And all kinds of back problems. There were, there were, there were some ships were met and were going over others, but you couldn't tell because the thing was happening so quickly. And and the thing is that, that, that that's one of the things about filmmaking is you, you have to learn how to cheat and, and, and learn how to cheat the, in a way that you can get away with it. Because shots and visual effects are temporal. And the audience only gets to see that shot for three seconds. I mean, you can go back and forth over a shot 
40 times in the screening room at, at three frames a second and, and analyze every ish, every iota of the shot. But the audience only gets to see it for three seconds. So you, you can get away with murder. And, and you're, not, you're not trying to get away with murder. You're trying to make the shot work in a way that, that is possible for you to do the shot. And to make the shot perfect, it's not, to do, it's not financially uh, wise to try to do that because you, you have to finish all these shots by a release date. And so you have to, you have, you have to parse your time. So, so part of visual effects, part of the art of visual effects is the art of spending money and spending time have X amount of time to do things and you have to do it in the most efficient way possible. And, and you have to depend on your ability to, to cheat, to get there. Kirsch was a stickler for things and he, for various reasons, the, the picture went over schedule and every couple of weeks we'd say, you know, instead of going back in this date, we're going to go back two weeks later. And then it kept getting extended. It was like a moving horizon, you know, and uh, finally, we wound up at the end. We, the picture wound up shooting 13 weeks over schedule. No, that's not true. It's uh, no, that is true. We, we, spoke, we were scheduled for 16 weeks, and they shot 29. So we lost 13 weeks out of our post schedule, and uh, yet we made it up anyway because um, we locked the picture one month after the end of shooting. So that was pretty quick. Um, it was due to you know a, a script that really worked well and. I don't know, everybody was sort of on board with the cut, pretty much as it was, and it just, you know, sometimes pictures just work. Lucasfilm legend Mickey Herman. It was pretty ambitious. We moved, relocated ILM to San Rafael, to Marin County. So we were setting all of that up and building... They were building new cameras to shoot in Norway, and Irvin Kirshner, he was great, and George and Gary had a lot of respect for him, but he uh, took too long. It was very complicated, so they went over budget, and, you know, he finished the movie, and, and most people think that it's the best in the original trilogy. I was the special effects coordinator at ILM, plus I was doing the ancillary stuff at the same time. And there were a lot of shots, but it got done. And it opened, and, and the rest is history. that will do it. Hopefully you all enjoyed this little celebratory experiment and thank you all for an incredible two years of this podcast and here's to two more and here's to 40 more for Empire. As always it is so appreciated if you could leave a five star review and a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps so much somehow. Until next time though, stay tuned and may the force be with you.